Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have a distinct perspective on time. Andrew, this week you speak with AI pioneer Kai-Fu Lee, whose new book, AI Superpowers, is a must-read. What did you guys discuss on the podcast? We discussed a lot of things. We discussed his immigration to America as a child, his move back to China later on, um, what he's up to now, and um, his work with artificial intelligence. What I love most about him, and I think that you and I both gleaned from the time stock we attended in the fall and subsequently reading the book, is he has an incredibly refreshing Mm-hmm. perspective on how artificial intelligence is going to improve the human condition rather than hurt it. You know, he's not the guy who's saying robots are going to take over the world. And uh, <laughs> no, no gloom and doom here. No. And somehow I trust this guy more than most because he's both a scientist and an investor and really understands the landscape. And I think most interestingly helps us understand where China is today. It's no longer a copycat culture. They're innovating at an alarming rate. And it was nice to hear it from the source. Can't wait to listen to it. Here's Kai-Fu with Andrew. Kai-Fu Lee is an investor, a computer scientist, best-selling author. He's been called the Oracle of AI. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Welcome, Kai-Fu Lee. Thank you. So I want to start with some pretty basic stuff. When did the development of artificial intelligence really begin? Well, the concept began almost 60 years ago uh, when researchers were trying to figure out how the human intelligence worked and whether it could be replicated by software. But eventually, it um, morphed and changed. So what we call AI today, things that work in speech recognition and pattern recognition and internet technologies uh, and robotics are actually based on a branch of AI uh, called machine intelligence and machine learning. And more specifically, the one big, big breakthrough is called deep learning. And deep learning actually isn't human intelligence at all. It's a really big pattern recognition engine that when you feed it with huge amounts of data and the proper decision, prediction, and outcomes, it trains to use mathematical ways to come up with optimized answers, Mm. Uh, whether to give a loan to someone, whether to show you an ad, whose face that is, what did the person say, at superhuman accuracy. So today's AI, uh, what we call AI, is actually very narrow, domain-specific, but incredibly capable and superhuman within very limited tasks. Right. And why was it so kind of stagnant for so long? Actually, the ideas of deep learning have been around. Uh, Even when I was doing my PhD thesis in the 80s, algorithms were discussed back then. But it turns out deep learning needed a lot more samples Mm. because it's mathematically based on statistics. And it really needed to see a lot more samples than humans do. 
And when I did my PhD in the 80s, the machines weren't fast enough. The mm. discs were too expensive. So we were using uh, one millionth of, of computation and storage as we have today. And in, with the lower cost of storage and compute, now deep learning really, really works well. So mm. it's just a different mathematical brain, if you will, that requires many more samples than humans do to learn the same concepts. But when you have so much data, it actually works better than people. It's just a different kind of a brain that needs more samples. Mm. But, uh, but once you have that, it works great. Can you, can you describe to me the sort of, from your perspective, the moment we're in, in terms of human history? You know, what are we in right now? I'm not, I'm not sure too many of us understand it. Well, we're at an inflection point when what I described uh, is about to be used in every imaginable industry to create a huge amount of value. Uh, because while I try to be realistic and describe the limitations of AI and deep learning, it is actually incredibly easy to use. It's a tool that a, a smart computer science engineer can learn in weeks, at most months, and once these become easier and easier to use, there will be applications of AI applied to every imaginable industry. So financial, banking, uh, insurance, uh, automotive, healthcare, retail, there will be not a single industry that isn't going to be revolutionized with AI. In some cases, uh, industries will be disrupted by AI. Imagine the future, we don't go to banks to get loans, we use an app to get however much money we want at a much lower interest rate. But it will also be infused into various um, traditional companies. It will help retail companies manage inventory better, uh, figure out sales forecasts. It will help convenience stores become autonomous, cashierless, and um, people can just go in and take things and put them in their pockets and they're charged automatically. It will be connected to all kinds of data uh, it will know more about us. It will know our spending patterns, our uh, usage history, and use that to infer what we want. And it will recommend things to you, to us that will be much more accurate than before. It will really disrupt everything. So I think this process of disruption is something that we've only seen in a few times in history. Uh, electricity, industrial revolution, our maybe internet revolution are the three that I can I can think of. But this time, it'll be so much faster also, because compared to electricity, it took decades for the electrical grid to be built up. And, and then people had to invent uh, the new ways to use electricity, air conditioners, refrigerators, and so on. And it took uh, you know, over a century. And only now are we getting electrical cars. But uh, with AI, these engines work on the cloud, on the internet, and you can program them and connect them with the data that's also on the cloud, and engineers can access them. So, and, and also open source allows people to build on each other's work. So compared to electricity, which took decades, if not a century, to become fully pervasive, AI can be pervasive in years. And, and this disruption will bring tremendous value, tremendous efficiency, but also uh, tremendous disruptions because it would change business processes. It will cause companies to go out of business. It will take away people's jobs, especially if they're routine. So it's going to be a very exciting, but also a very challenging decade ahead. 
But the fears we had about trains and electricity were similar to the fears we're having about AI. Yes, yes. People are always afraid of new things. Uh, when automobiles were first came out, um, England actually passed a, a, a red flag law that said, in order for the automobiles not to frighten the horses, someone has to carry a red flag or, or wave a lantern in front, walking in front of the automobile. And imagine that just completely destroys the value of the car. And, and that was the kind of fear people had. But now, now we can't imagine um, our lives without automobiles. And the same will be true uh, about the paranoia about AI. And eventually there will be acceptance. And in a few years, we probably couldn't imagine living our lives without AI. How are we going to make AI compatible with humanity, though? I mean, how are we going to reconcile that relationship? Well, there are many aspects of challenges. Uh, AI is largely a tool, so it's not going to grow up to become uh, a, a monster that wants to control us. It has no self-awareness, has no desire to control us or manage us. So in that sense, it is like a tool. It is like an Excel, like a word. So something that we set the objective, so it follows us. So it's not as scary as most people think. However, there are many issues that come up. Uh, in order for AI to work well, it takes our personal information, our privacy, in order to give us the convenience. Is that the trade-off we want? And when it optimizes on the function, such as Facebook wants to optimize the minutes we spend on the newsfeed, so it doesn't look at other aspects, such as should, should it responsibly, according to... Uh, responsible journalism show us the kinds of things that might cause us to be more biased. So it doesn't, it's a single-minded, so that can have certain effects. Uh, there are also security issues. Uh, AI can be hacked. Uh, there can be deep fakes, making it looks like a celebrity or a president when, when it's not. So there are many of these Which you did issues. so beautifully with Trump on your TED Talk. Right, right. Uh, there was a company that actually made a system that talked like President Trump. And we also seen President Obama videos that were um, completely synthesized by AI. So these are new things we have to learn how, how to deal with. And uh, we are not very good at it and we get scared, but eventually we'll figure out solutions. Think about social networks, right? I mean, a lot of people are talking about the dangers of social networks. But I think eventually we have to believe in human wisdom. Technologies uh, were always uh, scary in the beginning, but uh, given time, human wisdom will figure out how we can uh, coexist with AI. You made an interesting point after the AlphaGo win um, regarding AI. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you saw that experience? Yes, AlphaGo is a system built by uh, Google and uh, DeepMind in the UK. And yet it demonstrated what people seem to believe required human intelligence, playing the game of Go, which is much, much more complex than chess, and also invented in China and defeating uh, the Chinese master, who is the champion of the world. And that really, in particular, woke up China because I think the Chinese people really thought Go was the 
uh, a pride of Chinese culture invented by the Chinese. The Chinese are best at it. And here it is, a European software defeating China at it. And it became kind of a Sputnik moment that caused uh, people who are constructive to think about, well, can we use this technology for other uses? Should we start a company based on that? And it caused the Chinese government to think about, is this a science and an area we want to increase funding and focus? And, and that has caused a, a huge mindset shift in China. And as I mentioned, AI is not really a rocket science anymore when all these Chinese people who work extremely hard are become determined to uh, understand and use this engine and create value. China has actually since rapidly caught up with the U.S. in artificial intelligence. But the points you make about how, you know, AI is not human, it doesn't contain emotion, mm. was so clear in, in what happened at the end of that game. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, at the end of the game, um, Ke Jian, the person who was defeated, uh, was crying because this is the game that he loved and he couldn't imagine this um, brilliant uh, computational engine that he couldn't possibly beat however he tried. But on the other hand, if you think about AlphaGo, it's just a piece of software. It, it didn't enjoy winning. It doesn't know why it's playing the game. It felt no happiness from winning and no desire to hug a loved one. And then we come back and if we take a step back and think about it, machines are cold calculating engines and humans have love and emotion and compassion, attachment. And, and these are maybe the things we should think more about uh, rather than can we elevate ourselves to beat AlphaGo again. Mm. You came out with an extraordinary book last fall called AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. And in it, you describe how fast China's moving towards becoming the global leader in AI. What do you think is enabling this momentum? Well, because AI is becoming more accessible, it's open source, and the big breakthrough is deep learning and is reasonably well understood. Um, it really isn't the case that while U.S. has much better researchers in AI than any other country, it isn't the case that deep research capability translates directly to commercial value. Because AI is well understood and no longer a rocket science, what really matters are things like, do we have entrepreneurs who will find places where AI adds value? Do we have engineers who can quickly train themselves and work incredibly hard to iterate and make AI work? Do we have large amounts of data uh, that can be the fuel to make AI work great? Do we have subsidies from government? Do we have VCs with money? And do we have a large market that has that kind of data and, and, and demonstrate that kind of value once, uh, once it's proven? And China happens to be strong in all of these areas. Uh, China is by far the largest market of internet and mobile users, has by far the largest amount of data, and Chinese entrepreneurs are incredibly hardworking uh, and tenacious and uh, single-minded wanting to achieve great success. China has more money in the VCs for AI, and the Chinese government is uh, supporting and building infrastructure to help move this along. So all of these things uh, became fused together and rapidly accelerated China to be arguably roughly on par with US right now. And that would seem inconceivable in many other scientific domains, 
But because of the special nature of AI, uh, China managed to do that in the last couple of years. Well, there's this general belief in this country that Silicon Valley is kind of the cradle of invention and China is the copycat culture. But something's changed. What's changed in the recent years that that has made this belief outdated? Yeah, outdated is exactly the right word. That used to be the situation. U.S. was by far ahead. China copied and learned from the master. Silicon Valley was the most creative. And certainly Silicon Valley is still the most innovative in coming up with breakthrough ideas. But with the advent of internet, one could iterate and try many ideas. It's not about the success of Apple or Google. The brilliant ideas took years to develop and became way ahead when they came out. Now it's more about, are you a, a flexible team that launches something quickly and let things break and use feedback from users and iterate your products? And that became more important in many cases in creating value than the brilliant original idea. Uh, If you iterate 50 times and arrived at a product that could wow people, that's just as useful, just as valuable as if you had a brilliant idea and closed the doors and built something that took three years. So the Chinese entrepreneurs have been in the last 10 years uh, leveraging the size of the China market which attracted a lot of venture capital money and and used that market and uh, the incredible hard work and, and tenacious nature of the entrepreneurs. They would uh, iterate, they would work 80, 100 hours a week, and they would find solutions and they would find new ways to pivot. So in the beginning, it was copying the American idea completely. Then it was initiating with an American idea, then iterating to something better. But now, with a lot of practice, many of the Chinese entrepreneurs have become innovative. They could come up with their own ideas and use the market to test it. So in short, I think China's uh, 10-year miracle, moving from copycat to innovator, is basically a cycle that began with a larger market, attracting more money, and then attracting great entrepreneurs who iterate and build great products and use that product to get users and data and use that data to train AI and use AI to build even better products and use those products to even grow the market. So it, it basically is a cycle that, uh, that continued. And if you look at the Chinese uh, products today, products like TikTok is being used everywhere. American teenagers even love it. My kids love it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Ant Financial is the world's largest uh, financial processing, uh, mobile payment processing, much larger than PayPal. And China has innovative pro- uh, companies like VIP Kid and Mobike and Pindodo and billion company made in three years. So these new innovative products were not even inspired by Silicon Valley anymore. So the Chinese are able to create a parallel set of applications and almost a parallel universe that no longer depended on American innovation. And I think that kind of a change in 10 years is is unthinkable. But I think Americans don't understand that that if you're in China now, you don't own a credit card. Right, right. You know, so it, what are some of the great examples you can tell me of, um, you had mentioned the scooter company and some of these these other, but what are some that you really love, these success stories? Yeah, so the incredible convenience when you have mobile payment 
in in China, there's no longer use of cash or credit cards. Everything's mobile payment, and it's not just Apple Pay for China. This is payment that anyone can pay anyone. So it's 700 million people. Anyone can pay anyone with just a few clicks in、um, any amount of money. Any amount of money, down to 15 cents at a minimum. So it makes everything easy. It makes so easy to、uh, to to run the store. You、If、tell you, a story about how you can donate to the homeless on the street. Yes, well, actually, homeless they started having some trouble because people didn't have coins anymore. But now they the homeless、uh, hold up a big sign that says "Scam me." And when you scan, you just click to give money by mobile to the to the person who、It's、wants、amazing. the money. And、uh, there were robbers who went to co- convenience stores, and they could only get、uh, less than a hundred dollars after robbing three stores because <laughs> there's no no cash anymore. And that dramatically reduces the transaction costs because credit card companies charge two or three percent, and that's a tax on the entire economy. And now that's gone because it's gone direct. And also, it makes entrepreneurism a lot easier. New products that came out,、uh, shared bicycles that you could scan and pay immediately.、Uh, ordering online is incredibly easy, and ordering、uh, food has become easy. In almost any Chinese city, you can now order takeout from probably a thousand different restaurants near you, delivered to you in thirty minutes, and the delivery fee is only seventy cents. It's a combination of、uh, refined algorithms and AI, and just hard work in reducing the cost of delivery by using the cheapest transportation, mopeds, and so on and so forth. Actually, life has become much more convenient in China.、Uh, a famous American professor recently went to China, and she was going from meeting to meeting,、uh, didn't have time for dinner. And she was hungry, so the driver said, "Do you want me to order you something?" And she said, "Well, how is that possible? We're stuck in traffic." He says, "Don't worry." So he ordered food, delivered to where he thought the car would be in 30 minutes. So the moped driver drove next to the car. They opened the window, they handed the food over. Amazing. And and that is almost like、um, science fiction, and、um, the convenience is incredible. And, and that's all happened in the last、uh, five years or so. Do you think that the sort of explosion of success in the valley affected their perspective? In short, you know, is, hu- is hubris getting in the way of innovation? Well, I th- I think certainly success breeds、uh, self entitlement, and I think that's the danger facing Silicon Valley. If you think about the days of、uh, Intel, Microsoft.、Uh, th- There was no competitor anywhere in the world, so they didn't have to localize, cater to needs of China, India, or other countries. It was take it or leave it. So the American companies are used to essentially monopolizing the world. You could call that behavior hubris. You could call it self entitlement. You could call it why why do work when you don't have to? But、um, the Chinese companies are now emerging. Not only are they successful in China, but they're also going overseas.、Uh, TikTok, as an example, is taking the world by storm, and it's quite successful in、uh, Southeast Asia and Africa, U.S. even. And Chinese companies are also more willing to customize the product for local needs. So when Alibaba sold AliCloud to countries in the Middle East, they will make changes. 
in order to comply with local regulations or user preferences. But Amazon Cloud would be reluctant to make a special version for the Middle East. So that flexibility, so when the Chinese companies have good enough technologies and greater flexibility to to customize and greater attention to market and users, this is when Silicon Valley needs to wake up. Um, Otherwise, uh, they will lose business in different parts of the world. You talk about how you took some of your colleagues on a trip to the Valley. Yeah. And you noticed some things. Yes. Actually, I I have always taken entrepreneurs uh, to visit, visit Silicon Valley. The first trip was, I think, about five years ago. At that time, it was like seeing Mecca. People were saying, wow, that's Google and that's Tesla. We worship uh, these entrepreneurs and, and, and they were you know, taking pictures and learning things and didn't notice some of the flaws of Silicon Valley. But the last trip we took was about a year ago. And actually people came back with real sobering remarks that says, well, while Silicon Valley is very innovative and the people are very smart, they didn't seem to work very hard. That was the summary. You know, the Chinese entrepreneurs work 80 to 100 hours a week. So when they came to Silicon Valley, yes, there was some time for relaxation, but they really wanted to get a 9 o'clock, 9 p.m. meeting with some people. And nobody would take that meeting. Uh, They would want to have meetings on weekends. And and very few people were open to that. And they went to these companies they worshipped, Google uh, and, and so on. And they found the parking lots were empty at six or seven. So they, they found that uh, to be astounding, that when you're in the top of the world, have such great technologies, how could it not excite you to work incredibly hard? And, and that drive seemed missing in Silicon Valley. It wasn't in the 90s right. and in the early 2000s, you know. Yeah. They were struggling. Yeah. What happens, you know, when we get some success? Well, within each company, I've worked at Apple, Microsoft, and Google. Uh, what I saw within those three companies was the when the employees were there in their 20s, uh, they were single, they were passionate, excited, the company was growing fast, and they wanted to experience that high. But when they got in their late 30s and 40s, they you know had family, work-life balance, and the companies were maturing, and uh, the stock wasn't going up as much. The, the environment wasn't so exciting. The larger company had bureaucracy and politics, and that was not so fun. So working 50 hours a week seemed good enough. So within each company, that was the case. But I do wonder, where is that next Google that worked as hard as Google when it was in its first five years? I, I, I think that may be slowing down too. And why doesn't this happen as much in China? Well, eventually this may happen in China because I don't think personally it's healthy for people to work 100-hour weeks. They will burn out. Uh, But I think the Chinese people currently resist burnout through through sheer determination. And, And they're so determined because many of these entrepreneurs come from families that have been poor for for 20 generations and that their parents expect and hope and push them to be successful so that it could lift the family out of poverty and their village out of poverty. Obviously, China doesn't have a lot of poor regions anymore, but there's still poorer villages that really have high expectations. And when it's a single child 
uh, family, then that single child has two parents and four grandparents. That's those six people's 100% expectation is on you to make good for the family name and the, and and bring 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 people into the middle class. So that expectation is 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 huge. Also, um, I think China has was poor not too long ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, and uh, when Deng Xiaoping opened up China uh, 40 years ago, he said, "Let some people get rich first. And this was a in a country where everybody was poor. And, and people were just uh, rushing through the gate, hoping they could be that first group of people or second group of people who make it. This became a single-minded goal for, for, for essentially all of the Chinese. So that's why there's this single-minded determination. Now, take another 30, 40 years as middle class emerges that might be gone then. But I think it's still here and here to stay for another decade or two. And, you know, we've been talking about sort of America versus China, America and China. Why has it been so hard for U.S. companies to work within China? Why has, basically, how has language created this sort of breakdown in understanding? Well, the cultures are quite different. The government regulations are different. And I think in the early days when China didn't have its own domestic companies, the American companies were not only welcome, but quite successful. Mm. So those were the days when IBM went in, HP went in, Intel went in. Those were the days when Procter Gamble and uh, General Motors, and these companies are still quite successful. But over time, the Chinese companies developed their own capabilities. And um, the American companies didn't customize for China or didn't customize enough. Then the Chinese products eventually became as good or in many cases not as good, but so much cheaper. And then in some cases became better. And, And that changed the Chinese people's mindset. Yet the American companies didn't flip over to the new way of seeing the world. They were still thinking their product was better and should dominate. And they didn't make enough exceptions. And and then as the Chinese companies improved, the window of opportunities closed. So so now there are almost no examples of American success in in China. So many companies think of this as a, a hopeless task. But it didn't have to be. But now it really might be. As we move into this kind of age of AI, where do you see some of the biggest security concerns? Uh, they're multifold. One is someone could hack into AI parameters and cause AI to fail because AI is a big math equation with lots of numbers. It's not code that gets hacked into, but numbers. So imagine a hacker messes with the bank's numbers. So n- none of the code is, the software has changed. They mess with the numbers so that a loan is given to someone when it shouldn't be. Or imagine a face that should be recognized as a terrorist and uh, arrested at the airport, but isn't because of hacking. Imagine someone putting a few stickers on an automobile that might be a terrorist engine of attack, but those stickers cause the automobile to appear invisible 
to other autonomous vehicles. Think how dangerous that can be. So that's one set of hacking into AI as a security issue. Uh, a second set would be taking over AI, just like hackers have taken over PCs and phones. They could take over. Imagine when all of our cars are autonomous vehicles and someone hacked in and turned them into uh, cars that that don't avoid people but hit people. Imagine how how terrible a map weapon of mass destruction that could be. Uh, AI security is also deep fakes. How do you how can you tell what's real and what's not? And 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 finally, the, the ultimate security is autonomous weapons. Without human in the loop, AI can if if we allow AI to pull the trigger. Imagine how many triggers there can be, and also how smart the the targeting can be. A, a, we've seen a video on the internet with a drone that will track down someone, uh, find using face recognition, and then basically pull the trigger and become a personal assassin that isn't arrestable. Right? You can't go arrest a drone. So all these issues are significant and real concerns. And there's this growing mistrust. I mean, in the last year, the tech backlash has been enormous in this country. And the government hasn't totally figured out how to step in, at least here, completely. You know, how how will governments play a role in policy moving forward with AI? Well, governments clearly have to regulate and and have serious punishment for the most egregious behavior. On the other hand, they shouldn't overdo it, right? So, you know, if a company sells user data to another company, that should be viewed as a serious felony in order to prevent that from happening. The, the, the autonomous weapons and drones, those have to be regulated. Uh, probably just can't let drones fly into c- cities. Uh, I wish there was a better solution, but that might just be what we need to give us the safety we need. Uh, so regulations are needed, but at the same time, technology is often the best way to combat technology misuse. Mm. So can we protect the user's privacy by coming up with technologies that transforms and morphs your personal information into non into non-reversible, non-interpretable strings? Mm. Uh, so your name, address, credit card number no longer looks like what they do, but they can still be used in AI to to make um, better targeted um, recommendations for you. So those kinds of technologies, can they be used? Uh, deep fakes, human eyes cannot tell the real video and fake video, but AI forensics can. So I think developing technologies and using them in tandem with regulations, just like viruses are fought by computer security software, I think the same will, will be true. We, it's very dangerous if we think about it's all it's all uh, Silicon Valley's fault. It's all AI's fault. It's all technology's fault. Let's use te- regulation to stop technology development. That would be the wrong thing to do. I think we should work together, technologists and policymakers, to use the combination of regulations and technology to combat misuse. Well, you you ha- you also have this incredibly optimistic perspective on technology. Mm-hmm. And some people think this is just really a kind of technological arms race, hmm. you know, for hearts and minds, really, without any real substance. Do you believe that we actually have a shot at improving our lives and well-being or ultimately we'll sort of 
surveillance capitalism steamroll it? Well, I think we clearly have a shot because AI is a neutral technology. It's how we humans use it. And my optimism comes from, you know, past technological revolutions. They've all led to good and bad uses, but the good ones way outnumber the bad ones. And we find ways to control the bad ones and the misuse. So I think there's historical evidence that there is human wisdom that will eventually uh, prevail. Uh, I, I also think that we people's belief about AI are sometimes shaped by what they see in science, they saw in science fiction. So in science fiction always makes the AI the villain and makes the villain full of uh, desire to control the human beings. When AI is just a tool with no desire, I think we need to educate everyone to be aware that AI is just a really, really powerful tool, but it's a tool that we control nevertheless. And when we start to see that, uh, some of the fears um, hopefully will begin to subside. I mean, because we hear it from, you know, in contrast to what to, to, to what you're talking about in the last year, we hear it from really influential figures, Elon Musk, you know, these, these people are saying AI is going to take over humanity. Yeah. Well, AI certainly isn't going to take over humanity. I think there are many influential people who might not be experts in AI uh, who understandably draw conclusions, but they're not right. It's because when you see every week there are headlines showing AI is now beating people in Go, beating doctors in lung cancer diagnosis, beating people in uh, computer games, and uh, doing better than people on standardized tests. So you you could easily draw an exponential curve where the AI's IQ is increasing. But what really is happening is it's just one technology breakthrough that could work on one domain at a time, limited optimization and uh, pattern recognition. This deep learning is being applied to a number of domains and people are clever to pick domains in which it will do well. It's not at all anywhere close to doing what a full doctor can do. It's arguably arguably never going to do that because that requires you know, creativity and compassion and that um, AI does not have. So I think these extrapolations based on growing number of applications is not the same as exponential increase in true technological capability, which hasn't happened. We've had one big breakthrough in technology and we have yet to see another. So we have one big breakthrough. It's like electricity is invented. And now there are lots of applications built on deep learning as it was on the electricity, but these applications are are limited. So, so people who draw the conclusions based on the applications are just too optimistic and extrapolating too fast about capabilities of AI. Now, having said that, I do think the other dangers we talked about earlier about privacy and security and and bias and um, careless errors that it could make to cause us to think extreme thoughts and bias, those are all serious issues, but but they're not existential issues. And my spell check doesn't work on my phone. <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah, exactly. Some basic AI stuff is still very early. Yes, spell checks should actually improve um, a lot. Uh, things that we thought we had 95% right, uh, OCR, spell checking, with AI and deep learning, they should get to 99.999%. So that will get fixed. 
So you were born in 1961. Right. The seventh child. Yes. And your siblings were far older than you. That's right. Um, you were like the ultimate baby in the family. Yeah, my siblings were eight to 25 years older than me. What were your earliest days like? What do you remember from that time? Well, my strongest recollection was my mom. Um, she really wanted a boy. She had all girls. And um, she would, on the one hand, give me whatever I wanted, whatever I wanted to eat, whatever toys I wanted. She spoiled me. On the other hand, she was extremely demanding. Mm. She insisted that I became number one in every class. She would um, uh, watch me as I uh, uh, wrote Chinese calligraphy, and then she would, you know, throw away my paper when I didn't do a good job. She would make me memorize uh, ancient Chinese poems. If I got one word wrong, she would throw the book out of a room and make me redo it. So it was a combination of spoiled materialistically, but incredibly demanding academically. And and you made this amazing decision when you were five that you, you thought you were ready to move on in school. Uh, yeah, I wanted to skip kindergarten. <laughs> it was a very small decision. And, um, but, but, but my parents were actually quite enlightened too. Um, most parents would just say, this is silly, don't do it. Or, okay, do it. What they said was, well, in public schools, you can't skip a grade. So the only way you can do it is to go to private school and they have an entrance exam. So why don't you study for it? And if you pass it, then you can go. If not, you can't. So that had the impact of turning the decision back to me and making a five-year-old feel like he uh, controlled his own destiny. And I think that was very empowering, especially in the Asian culture. That's quite unusual. And mm -hmm. I think that was actually a very important thing for my life, that, that I would be the driver of my, uh, my life and control my own destiny. And what happened after you took the test? I did quite well, so I got in. Mm. Yeah, And there, there's one story in particular from your childhood that I read that I really love and I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about, which was your strategy for staying up late at night. My strategy in college? For no, staying up? no, it, when you were a little kid. Oh, when I was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yes, uh, I hated sleeping. So, um, Do you still hate sleeping? No, no, sleeping is, is the best way to help your immune system recover. <laughs> but when I was little, I just wanted to sleep less. So, uh, of course, my parents would insist that I go to bed um, at nine. Uh, and, and that was way too early. So to fight back, uh, one, one, one night I went to all the clocks in the room and turned all the clocks back by an hour. <laughs> so that gave me an extra hour to play. It also made everybody late to work or school the next morning. Seems like you had a great childhood, actually. And, it was fun. And at 11, you made a decision to leave China. Tell me uh, about that. Yes. Um, my, uh, my brother, who went to U.S. to study, uh, went back to Taiwan, and he saw that Asian exams and education was much more about rote learning and that the American system was much more creative. So he suggested to my parents that I could stay with him in Tennessee, and and he would take care of me, and then I would be able to uh, enjoy the best education system in the world. My parents again said to me, Kai Fu, do you want to do it? If you do, you can. And mm -hmm. then I said, yes. So I moved as a 
11 year old to study in, in the US. In Oak Ridge. Oak Ridge. And what was that like? It must have been totally shocking. Oak Ridge is actually a, um, a, a town with a lot of scientists. Mm. So the academically, because of the Oak Ridge National Labs, mm. uh, the Manhattan Project was actually uh, built in Oak Ridge. And then after the World War II, uh, Oak Ridge grew and, and had labs in other areas like biology and biochemistry. So both my brother and sister-in-law were there. But nevertheless, it, it, it was, uh, uh, yeah, it was the South. Not everybody was a scientist. And, um, and also I went to a, a Catholic school. It, it was uh, very eye-opening for me because not only was the education great, uh, kids were allowed to pursue their individual dreams and choose some classes that was unthinkable coming from Asia. And also um, there was a principal of my school who saw that I didn't know a word of English. So she, she gave up her lunch hour and um, taught me uh, first grade English. I was in seventh grade, but she started on first grade English. To, and then after a few months, I was able to uh, follow in, in class. And that I had a great math teacher. Uh, she really convinced me that I was a math genius. <laughs> I'm not, but uh, I thought I was. And that gave me the interest and the passion to work on math. So in fact, next week, I'll be back in Oak Ridge visiting my school and my teachers. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Did you notice something early on when you got there that actually gave you an advantage from the early education in Taiwan? Well, yes. A Taiwan education was very much rote learning. So the, so we were very good at memorizing things. So that was why maybe some of my teachers thought I was a genius in math. You know, they would give a problem like, you know, what's one seventh? So I, in my head, I could come up with the answer because I memorized it. You know, one seventh uh, expressed in decimal is 0 0.142857. Repeat it. <laughs> So I can still to this day remember it because it was pounded into my head by my math teachers in Taiwan. You were also really creative in business at a young age, which is interesting. Tell me a bit about your, um, there were two stories that I love, the math camp yeah. story I love, and I also love the t-shirt company story. So start with the math camp. What happened the at math camp? Where you, I stole pass passwords? Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. So, so my first... Um, time I, I got to play with computers was during my um, high school years. And I went to uh, University of Chicago math program and we got to play on mainframes. Mm -hmm. And then I learned simple programming and, and I wrote a program to, uh, to, to guess other people's passwords. It's a very simple program. You just tried iterations of uh, uh, combinations of characters and most people weren't that careful at the time. And if there's like a three character series sequence you could you could guess it so so i hacked i i guessed the password of a friend i hacked into his account and uh, and i made some funny posts um that was uh, embarrassing for him which is a great story and then in 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 high school you had this opportunity to to take part in this junior achievement mm -hmm. club which is i guess the first time you properly did any business yes i think junior achievement is a, is a great thing and i'm on junior achievements 
China board now mm. to to help them as well. I'll be giving my speech to Junior Achievement as well. The the entrepreneurial aspect was the best part of Junior Achievement.、Uh, a bunch of kids got to build a company. I was in there twice. The second time, I was the president of the company, and then we decided to、uh, make these T-shirts to complain to the school about reduced lunch hours. So we made these really cute T-shirts with、uh, with a picture of a. Dog that's really really long and said longer lunch, and and the T-shirts sold very well. So the company made a big profit and became the、uh, company of the year that year in the in the region. Did it give you a sense that you wanted to take part in business later in your life? Yes, and it it gave me the basic rudimentary workings of a company, right? What shareholders do and how you can create shareholder value, how to do marketing, how to do sales. How to organ self-organize? I thought that was a lot of fun, so so I I wanted that to be part of my future. And you graduated most likely to succeed out of high school, right? <laughs> yes. Right. And 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 you you applied to twelve colleges, right?、Um, and what did you learn through that process, and where did you end up eventually? Well, I applied to colleges in a very Chinese way, which is you take the top twelve ranked schools, you apply to them all. See and then get into the highest ranked one and go. So、um, it was a, it's a, a, unimaginable people would do that anymore. But that's the way it worked in China.、Uh, when you apply to college, it, you actually take an exam, and based on your score, you the highest score people go to number one school. The next set go to number two school. <laughs> so that's what I did. So I got rejected by the number one, number two, number three, number four schools, and I ended up going to Columbia in New York City. Which was great for me. Yeah, why? Why did that turn out to be such a good place for you? Well, I chose Columbia just because of luck. Because I didn't get into the other schools that were ranked higher. Columbia was the highest ranked school I got into. But what turned out to be great is the exposure to New York City, which、mm -hmm. is as different from Tennessee as you can imagine. And also, Columbia had a program that required. Reading of、um, classics in philosophy and literature,、uh, the contemporary civilization class, the literatures, humanities class, art, music classes, it it really gave me a different foundation than a normal engineering education would have given me, and it made me think more about issues like why do we exist, how to deal with problems, our responsibility. When I see artificial intelligence, I didn't just see it as an engineering problem or solution or product, how to make money. I thought about its implications about job displacements and what are our responsibilities. How can that be a strong calling to、um, our inner selves, and 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 how would that help the progress of、uh, human beings? And those would not have been possible had I not gone to Columbia and. Read those two hundred classics, which I really hated at the time, but they really sank in me and became a part of me, and caused me to、uh, think with my left and right brain, and give speeches, write books, in addition to the technology products and business. Yeah, which is really half of your focus is is the humanities in a way. And yeah, and I think that's a. So a lot of people, when they ask me about their college choice and their careers, even though they might be wanting to go to engineering or science, I I, I always suggest to them to consider a school like Columbia or, or Harvard that allows them to 
really balance the humanities part. Those are the things that will stay with you. You know, my my older daughter wanted to become a fashion designer, but we discussed and compromised. She ended up going to Columbia, took all the classes I took, and then she went to Parsons. So she did both. Yeah. And, and I think she now feels her most uh, wonderful years were at Columbia. Yeah. And her friends are her Columbia friends. And the learning that she had at Columbia is, is now instrumental to her always able to come up with art uh, in a timeless way, as opposed to just be a very good um, designer or drawer of pictures. And and then you went to Carnegie Mellon for your PhD work. Yes. And what did you work on at, at, at Carnegie Mellon? I worked on speech recognition. Carnegie Mellon is an amazing school for artificial intelligence. There were a couple of choices I had, uh, natural, lang- natural language understanding, speech recognition, and computer vision. It turns out these were the three areas I ended up managing and working on throughout my professional career. But I chose speech recognition because I thought at the time, given the state of the art and the cost of computing, it was something that I could demonstrate tangible results. It was important to me that my PhD thesis was just not a theoretical piece of work, but that I could have something to show that could have practical use. So at the time I thought, Uh, Computer vision was harder because it required dealing with multiple dimensions and speech recognition was a fewer dimensional signal and that was something I could really do. So I I studied under uh, Raj Reddy, who Mm. was a pioneer in uh, speech. Your mentor. And and, yeah, my mentor. And um, yeah, I worked on speech recognition. And then they wanted you to stick around. Yes, my PhD thesis at the time was a breakthrough. It um, led to much better results than other uh, speech recognizers. So Carnegie Mellon made an exception. Uh, usually schools don't don't want their graduating PhDs to stay because the cross-pollination is better for the academia, but they wanted me to stay, so, so I did. And you could have gotten tenure, you had a cushy situation, but you made another choice. Yes, I went to Apple in 1990, two years after um, uh, staying at Carnegie Mellon and teaching. And what was it like at Apple at that time? I mean, it wasn't the Apple that people often think of. Not at all. Uh, people, the first thing people ask me is, did you work with Steve Jobs? And my answer is, I worked there between jobs. <laughs> I was there uh, uh, after he had left, and then I left before he came back. It was a very um, dark period at Apple. Most people thought it would go out of business. Not the time I went, but uh, I think it started getting in trouble in the late 91, 92, and then that trouble continued uh, until uh, Steve came back. Most people thought Apple, with its um, conflicted strategy of wanting to um, preserve its roots of excellence in design and also go for market share, those were not compatible strategies. And the company's DNA was really built around the former. And uh, twisting it to do the latter turns out to be very, very difficult. But you had this beautiful situation. You were in this secret office. Mm-hmm. You were largely unlooked at, right? And, yeah. And, and you, there were two significant moments during those years that I'd love to hear about. How you got to the TED Talk mm-hmm. and Good Morning America. Yeah. 
Well, it was the same, and actually one led right to the next, to the other. When I started, I was working on a secret project meant to be Macintosh 3. That never shipped. So I was sent back to the advanced technology group where I led the speech and natural language groups. And towards the end of 92, uh, John Scully, who was at the time CEO, was getting pressure from the board to sell the company because Apple was doing pretty poorly and uh, the future prognosis was not good. So he decided he needed to showcase that the company had leading technology in some number of areas and use that as a selling point to sell to companies like Philips, AT&T, and, and Sony, and others. So I became one of the chief demonstrators for John. So I would go to these companies and demonstrate technologies. And he also wanted to demonstrate them publicly so as to project Apple's image so that it could sell for a better price. So when he was um, invited to give a TED Talk in Monterey, I think it was um, 92 or 93, he brought me along and uh, he gave his talk. And then I demonstrated uh, speech recognition working on the Mac which at that time was uh, unthinkable because speech recognition required a lot of computational cycles and Mac was not very fast. But we made a special hardware DSP-based board that accelerated speech and it worked speaker uh, speaker independently, continuously, and it responded in real time. And we we built very nice demos of speech controlling a number of functions on the Mac. For example, it could write checks to people and program a VCR and schedule meetings. And it was a very compelling demo. So at TED, um, there were sort of the who's who, including Professor Marvin, Marvin Minsky from MIT, who was fascinated and quoted on the Wall Street Journal about my demo, and, and also the Wall Street Journal, which wrote a front page article about Apple's breakthrough in speech that caused the stock to go up two or three points. And then um, Good Morning America saw that and invited John and, and me to go on the show to demonstrate the speech recognition. Live TV with a demo. It was live TV and a demo with a demo that crashed a lot. <laughs> so how'd you deal with this situation? Well, oh, John said, this is live TV, so, so you can't re-record. This thing must work. And I told him there was about a 10% chance of crashing because we it was a board that we built and the board was not reliable. And he said, well, a 10% chance of crashing, that's too dangerous. We should um, just cancel it unless you can get it down to 1%. So of course we can't change the board, it was too late, but I said, we can do it. Um, and then uh, what we did was we brought two computers with two boards and then there was a um, manual switch that if the first computer crashed, there was a human who would switch the second computer. So if one computer has a 10% chance of crashing, the chance of both of them crashing is 1%. So I got to what he wanted. <laughs> Which is brilliant. And, and, and then you went to Microsoft. Yes, yes. At, uh, at Apple, it was very challenging because of Apple was um, not making money, a lot of layoffs. And then I went to SGI after Apple, which also ran into similar problems. And, and drawing on my two failed company experiences, I concluded that Microsoft was the only company that I could work at because other companies were all getting killed by Microsoft. That if my ideas and research were to see the light of day, 
it would have to be through a platform company like Microsoft. So I, so I went to Microsoft and um, a lot of people in Silicon Valley really couldn't believe that because Microsoft at the time was viewed as the, the evil empire in the, in the valley. Yeah. And, and it was also sort of the dark days of AI. I mean, this was not a popular area that you were in because this is pre-deep learning. Yes, yes. So I, I recognized that trying to make advanced technologies work at Apple and, 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 and SGI, that maybe some of these technologies needed more research for them to see the light of day. So Microsoft offered me to start a research lab in China that would give me more time to work on the same technologies, but uh, it would take a longer term horizon before deploying them uh, in a wide way. And this was the beginning of you being a Chinese executive for an American company. That's right. In China. That's right. And what was that like? Well, it was 98 uh, and and China was uh, really quite backwards, but I had gone back to China in 1990, and I was really impressed with the young students there. They worked incredibly hard. Uh, they would actually, you know, study under the streetlight when the dorm lights uh, went out. And I felt ethnically the same as them. I was just luckier that I got to the U.S. and studied in the best schools, and that these kids were as smart as me, and they worked harder than me, and they deserved more. So I I felt my my working for Microsoft a brilliant brand in China could attract some of the smartest people and help them realize their potential. So Microsoft Research China, which later was renamed Microsoft Research Asia, was became a talent magnet that attracted young, somewhat unpolished, um, really smart, hardworking young people. And uh, we, we wanted to, and then we basically help retrain them because they weren't trained well by the Chinese education at the time, mm-hmm. which was very backward. So we essentially said, forget everything you did in your PhD. That was not a useful piece of work. We're going to retrain you. And then we did. And and many of these um, people that we hired and trained uh, now are the leaders of AI in China. Wow. And then you went to Google. Yes, yes. I, trans- uh, I, I was at Microsoft uh, Beijing for a couple of years, moved back to Redmond for a couple of years. Then I saw that Google was starting uh, a China effort. And I was uh, fascinated by Google like everybody was. Um, At the time, there was a a joke that if you didn't get invited to Google for an interview, you weren't really all that smart because they were going after the smartest people. Uh, So I wrote Eric Schmidt a a message saying, I heard you were going to China and that might be something I'm interested in. And then Eric invited me for an interview and I got a job offer. So, yeah. And what was Google like in China at that time? I mean, it's, you talk about it like it was the greatest company you ever worked for in a way. Well, I still think Google is one of the, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest company in the world. Mm. Uh, it has an amazingly smart people and a fantastic culture. And Eric and Larry and Sergey gave me a lot of latitude. I, I had wanted to go build Google China uh, because it would broaden me out from a, a research and technology experience to a business executive that I would take the core technologies that were built in Silicon Valley and have my own engineering and product team and build on top of those products and new products that win market 
could win market share back mm. that we had lost and also build uh, sales and marketing and business and investment teams. So it would be a almost like a functioning company, but built on top of a, a brilliant platform. Sounds amazing. It was an amazing job for uh, So why'd you leave? <laughs> well, there are a lot of reasons, but I think the biggest, most compelling reason was that I was there at Google China for four years. Uh, towards the last year and a half, I lost most of my staff. Uh, they had left largely to do startups in China. And that really got me thinking that all these smart people, Google trained them well. They learned a lot about technology, future vision, what the U.S. is doing. And then they're doing startups in China. There must be a market emerging and an entrepreneurial ecosystem. Uh, so I talked to many of the people who had left because I was really lucky to have hired the smartest people because Google was such a big brand at the time. Um, still is, but even bigger then. And then I found that I saw this excitement in their eyes that they saw China is going to be the next biggest market and they needed to leave now, not a, a moment later in order to capture this opportunity. Then I started looking into the opportunity and it was indeed very exciting. And I thought, hey, I want to do that too. If this is going to be blossoming to the largest, most exciting market, I want a piece of that excitement in action. And, and I was too old to start my own company and probably not hands-on enough, but I thought I could be a, um, an investor, a uh, uh, angel or a venture capitalist and help nurture and help young people realize their potential and, and build great companies. So that was when uh, the main reason I left uh, in 2009 to form Sinovation Ventures, which is a uh, venture capital firm. Right, that you run now. And, and, you know, it seems that your relationship to the division between work and life has changed over time. Mm -hmm. Was there an inciting incident in your life that, um, that helped you shift perspective on your time and how you're spending it? Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I think I worked, I had the Chinese uh, um, work ethic. I worked 80 hours a week easily for most of my career. And that I was you know, obsessive, not just when I was at work, but when I went to bed, I would wake up automatically at uh, one o'clock or two o'clock. And then automatically again at five o'clock, uh, then I would go check my email and make sure that when I worked for Microsoft and Google in China, that I was able to uh, respond instantly to my bosses or my colleagues in, in the US. And, and that it would also send a message to my team that while wow, our boss works so hard, so we have to work hard too. So I felt that was uh, very exciting, motivating, and, and, and also um, to be able to use time incredibly efficiently was very important to me. So I worked incredibly hard and incredibly efficiently. And really, I didn't give my family the enough time that they deserved. When my first daughter was, was born, uh, I almost missed her birth because I had a big um, presentation to John Scully at, at Apple. So the big thing that changed me was uh, when I got lymphoma about six years ago. It was during the Sinovation years. I was working very hard. It was my first time I had my business. Very exciting. But um, being diagnosed with four-stage lymphoma really uh, made me rethink about all the things I had um, strived to achieve that when I was looking at maybe 
with hundreds of days left in my life, if the treatments were not effective, that I realized that working hard was the last thing I wanted to do. I would want to spend time with the people I love and that I regretted that I hadn't done that and that I want to work on things that I love and I work with people I love and, and going back and doing more work just was the least important thing and that I had my priorities messed up, that I had turned myself into a machine that was just uh, running and running and running every day the same and and that I promised myself that if I got well, I would uh, change my, my ways. And unfortunately, my chemotherapy was effective and um, uh, I returned to work, but I still work hard, but not 80 hours a week anymore. I also changed, most importantly, changed the priorities so that when my family needed something, I would drop everything at work to attend to them, whether it was just, um, you know, a personal issue or needed my help or graduation or birthday. That was the most important. When there's no personal emergencies or, or personal priorities, I could attend to work. Before, it was more I would get all the work done, and when I had a moment, I would spend time with my family. So I think the, the thing is not that you have to work 20 hours a week now and spend all the time with family and friends, but rather um, know when it's critical and important to be by their side. And when, when, when that happened, you need to make that the first priority and make work the second priority. And that, that was something I learned the hard way. Um, and, and, and also during my, my recovery, my family, my uh, wife, kids, sisters, they really took incredible care of me. And I saw that their selflessness in how they treated me and how I was very uh, cold and cruel in putting work as, as a top priority and treating them as really a second priority. And, and, and those combinations made me decide I need to change my priorities. I still love my work, still work pretty hard, but um, I think I achieve a much better balance now. And of course, you didn't come to this the day you got your diagnosis. Having this period of time mm -hmm. in treatment is maybe yeah. where you... Yes, yes. Well, when I got my diagnosis, I went through the usual denial, anger, and eventually acceptance. It was after acceptance uh, I had time off because during my treatment, my partners at work didn't want me to spend any time at work. They wanted me to focus on my health. So that gave me time to, to think and rethink and come to this uh, realization. Back to sort of AI, which is, you know, you return from, um, from treatment healthy, thank goodness. What do you think needs to change about our mindset about work and productivity as we move into the to this new era in AI? Well, I think my own illness uh, made me think that during the Industrial Revolution, we became programmed to work hard because because the Industrial Revolution actually replaced artisan jobs with assembly line jobs. And it would, would be shrewd to brainwash the people on the assembly line job that if you worked hard, even though it's routine work, you will make better life for yourselves and your families. And, and that was the kind of thinking that led to the 800-hour work week and the kind of 
routine that I had waking up at 2 a.m. every morning, uh, I became a machine. When I saw now that AI could do all routine jobs, it's really double wake-up call for me that I had made myself into a machine and that AI is the machine that would do the work meant for machines. So people are meant to do something else. So the epiphany is that uh, we should really be happy ultimately that AI will take care of all routine jobs and liberate us from having to do them. We should do what we're intended to do as humans who uh, inhabit the earth, whether we're put here by a maker or evolved ourselves, that our humanity, our specialty is in our creativity, our ability to deal strategically, our con connections and compassion with other people and our love. And that these are the things that I should do. And these are the things I should help get other people to realize uh, is what they should do, not the routine work. So finding a way to let go of the routine work and find what you love and embrace whether it's creativity or compassion, I think therein lies hum humanity's hope of uh, not only able to survive AI, coexist with AI, but find a better definition and meaning for humanity going forward. Which was illustrated to you when you were developing an elder care um, platform. Can you tell me a bit about what you noticed in that process? Well, I had an entrepreneur who uh, came to me who had developed a um, uh, essentially a robot for taking care of the elderly. And then he noticed that despite all the fancy functions he put in, the elderly really just primarily use one function, which was um, a customer service. And the customer service person would come on video, on the screen, on the robot, and say, how may I help you? Do you have trouble with your machinery? And the, uh, the elderly would say, oh, let me tell you about my kids or my, how, why didn't my son call me today? And what we found is that people don't want uh, robots to take care of them. They want people to take care of them. They want their children, if possible, if not their friends, if not another human. But uh, the belief that uh, robots can do compassionate work is still uh, uh, very far off. Um, maybe maybe something that will never happen because, because I think we thrive on that connection and that human touch. You know, there's this resounding fear about job loss. And what I love about what you put forward in AI superpowers, I think what everyone got so excited about was that, yes, there will be job loss, routine job loss. But like you've been saying, we are creating a an environment where empathic jobs and creative mm -hmm. jobs will, will rise up. You have this concept about the social investment stipend. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes, because AI will create a lot of wealth and that's money in super AI companies and that could be taxed. And as people are talking about whether that taxed money could be uh, given as universal basic income to help people basically find a new beginning for themselves. But I propose something different, which is I, th I think if you just tax the rich people and give everybody cash, for those who lost their jobs, hope that they will find the retraining they need and uh, get back on their feet. I think that's naive because it isn't obvious to everyone what jobs 
will be displaced by AI and what will not. Uh, it's important that we provide targeted guidance on what are the professions you should train yourself for that will be here to stay. So rather than giving money to everyone, I think there's first there should be subsistence money offered to everybody, but people who work hard in really retraining themselves with a new skill are the ones who should get the reimbursement. In other words, if you're laid off because you were doing some repetitive job, like assembly line worker, factory worker, warehouse worker, cashier, customer service, or so on, you will get an extra reimbursement if you take the time to retrain yourself in a skill set that would not be displaced by AI. For example, nurse, for example, elderly care, or in the, in the uh, physical work, repair of uh, robots and uh, aeronautics repair and things like that. So offering retraining and um, giving people a chance to find a job that will not be displaced is one aspect of this stipend. Uh, another aspect may be for people who don't want another big, long career, but they want to um, contribute to the society in positive, compassionate energy that helps other people. So I think we should think not just about jobs as something that could be compensated, but also volunteer work, people who want to spend time in orphanage or elderly homes and just spending time with people, not necessarily you know, taking care of them or bathing them, but just spending time chatting with them um, and just being there. Uh, that kind of volunteer work uh, has in many countries that I see give a new meaning back to the people because they feel like they're contributing positive energy to the world and they feel more fulfilled than even routine jobs. And to the extent that they're bringing value to other people, why can we not also pay people for this kind of, uh, of being a volunteer? Which is beautiful and answers your, your, your large question of why we exist. You know, we exist to create and to love. Exactly. So the, what I want to leave you with, what I want to leave on is, is I was very struck by this motto that your father had. Hmm. Um, Knowing the sun will set soon, the old horse runs faster without being whipped. Yes. How do you feel about that right now in your, in, in your moment in life? Actually, I, I feel that spiritually, but I don't feel that as an urgent thing. I feel that is important, but not urgent. I feel that as someone who's worked uh, many, many years and uh, gained a lot of useful experience, it would be a pity if I didn't share that during the next decade or two that I would still be working. But I think my father really felt not just an importance, but urgency. And that caused him to work incredibly hard, even when he was in his 70s and 80s. And I think having had lymphoma, faced it, and realized the importance of having a balanced life, uh, I think I should uh, pick the highest priority, most valuable things I have to share with the world and write a book once in a while, but not feel like I need to be doing that uh, 100 hours a week. So I, 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 I share some of my father's um, desire to use the limited time to contribute to the world, but I want to do it in a prioritized, important uh, way, not just urgent hours worked kind of way. 
That's beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive Podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. Slowdown.tv.